0: I can't believe you two took that raving lunatic seriously. What do you think this is? (laughs) well. Everybody believed in one story because they made it. How do you put it? They believed one guy's lie and went with it and used that lie to make him look like a monster or make him look like something he wasn't. I mean, he's far from perfect. But yet at the same time, he's a perfect soul. I feel that this one man fabricated this story to save his ass, and unfortunately, the media blew it up and made John look like a sick human being that he is not. And the way these prosecutors and detectives, they just went with what they they said. Hey, let's go with it. Let's take these words. Let's make a case. Let's let's frame a man. That's basically what happened. My friend got framed. He was a great family man before he got locked up. I know that. I, I mean, it's <laughs> reality. All. Around, a great person. I know that he had his run-ins with the drug trade and how that worked. And I, unfortunately, I think that was the demise of his case and it came back to haunt him. But in all honesty, I knew both parties and I would trust John 100% more than I would trust the other party. And I believe everything's fabricated. After hearing his story and he he uh, the place, I believe what he goes through and I can see exactly how how he could be uh, very uh, easily set up and trained for what happened. not that, uh, that that maybe he might not have made, uh, made faith in his wife that he wasn't, you know, an angel or anything. you was up. Look. He's trying to tell us. He's see it in his face. There's absolutely no doubt of your power to destroy. You're a very, very sick man absolutely no But uh, I, just believe, I don't believe it had anything to do with, with killing her or harming her. Ready to accept my domination. To the best of my knowledge, he has no violent past. Well I mean there's a lot of things that I wanna say, you know what I'm saying? Because I want my cousin to be free, you know, I don't want him to spend the rest of his life in prison for something he didn't do, you know, and uh he don't there's nothing in his background there but uh signifying that there was, there was nothing for him to gain, you know, out of that, you know what I mean? So I know the, like the Brown family, all the cats are full of shit. They're all liars. They're all con artists. They'll say whatever they got to say to save their own ends bet it took 20 years or more, but it's going to come though the dirt always comes out in the wash one way or another a lot of people are going to get exposed to a lot of people are going to the lights really going to shine on them you know that you can lie so much you could your, your actions prove what you really are and i think the gentleman that did it should have at least had to serve some time but we've been find the defendant john ortiz people, guilty of first degree pre <laughs> Hello, this is a prepaid debit call from John Kehoe, an inmate at the Michigan Department of Corrections, Muskegon Correctional Facility, from a 7 by 10 foot I am John Ortiz Kehoe and welcome to Creating a Cannibal. Creating a Cannibal is a podcast dedicated to exposing the truth behind the wrongful conviction that left me labeled as a monster and sent me to die in prison. Now, for the first time, you are about to hear the true story of what happened inside and outside of the courtroom. I'll reveal the names of witnesses who took the stand and tell you what they said. You'll find out who was actually involved and learn about the role they played in framing me for a crime I didn't commit. For 20 years, I was silenced by the concrete walls and razor wire that surrounds me. And for 20 years, the media ran with the one-sided version of this case. A version that is full of distorted evidence and outright lies. They gave you sensational headlines. Eight, I'm giving you the truth. My first day of trial was just what I thought it would be, a circus. The courtroom was packed, and the media was crowded into a corner with their cameras fixed on my every move and expression, as I was let in, not in shackles, but accompanied by an armed bailiff. Still, the jury understood the optics, say hello to the bad guy. My attorney gave no apology for the man I was. Instead of making excuses for my criminal lifestyle, he asked the jury to pay close attention to the actual facts of the case. Assistant Prosecutor Kelsey, on the other hand, came out and gave his full endorsement of Bill Brown. He then presented a few initial witnesses who took the stand and warmed up the jury for the show everyone came to see. Bill Brown was called to the stand. It was time for the main attraction to give his performance of a lifetime. This is Creating a Cannibal, Episode 4, Star Witness on the Stand. For the first two days of John's trial, the jury heard from a number of witnesses, who all confirmed that Ms. Larner was indeed missing, and believed to be dead. Assistant Prosecutor Kelsey was now ready to present the testimony, of a witness who would claim, that John Ortiz Kehoe was responsible for Ms. Larner's disappearance and her death. On the third day of John's trial, the prosecution called on its star witness, and Bill Brown took the stand. At the time of John's trial, Brown was out of jail on bond for assaulting his girlfriend. Brown's morbid tale began on the night of December 6, 1993. Bill Brown testified, that he, John Ortiz Kehoe and a female friend named Shelley Wood, drove in a white Chevy pickup truck, from Lansing, Michigan, to a Myers department store located in the city of Grand Rapids, Michigan. The purpose of their trip was to deliver marijuana to John's older brother. Bill Brown said, the trio consumed marijuana and cocaine while they drove, and Brown admitted that he was hoping to have sex with Ms. Wood. When Ms. Wood refused to have sex with Bill Brown, Brown wanted to be taken home. At around 2 or 3 a.m. John and Ms. Wood dropped Bill Brown off at his parents' home in Lansing. When they arrived at the house, Rose Larner was standing on the front porch. Brown said, Ms. Larner was furious and she began screaming profanities once she realized that John was in the truck with another woman. Ms. Larner called John a whore, and threatened to assault Ms. Wood. John responded by driving away and Bill Brown ushered Ms. Larner into the house, where he lived with his parents and two younger brothers. Bill Brown told the jury, that Ms. Larner begged him to page John Ortiz Kehoe, and convince John to come back and have sex with her. Brown told Ms. Larner, he would only convince John to return, if she would have sex with him too. According to Bill Brown, Ms. Larner reluctantly agreed to his proposal. Brown contacted John, and relayed Ms. Larner's request. Bill Brown confessed, that John was not interested in being with Ms. Larner, and he had to persuade John to come back. Brown boasted, that by the end of their conversation, his terms became John's terms, and John reluctantly returned. When John picked up Bill Brown and Ms. Larner, the trio drove to a country road, where they parked the truck, and John had sex with Ms. Larner. Brown said he tried to participate and attempted to fondle Ms. Larner's breast. Ms. Larner bit Bill Brown on the leg. Brown acknowledged, that Ms. Larner did not want him touching her, although Bill Brown claimed, that Ms. Larner bit his leg because of the intensity of the sex. According to Bill Brown, after John and Ms. Larner finished having sex, they drove to another Myers department store, again located in the city of Grand Rapids, Michigan. Brown claimed, that John entered the store alone and eventually came out with what he assumed were things for the night's festivities. Brown said, the trio then drove back to albion and ultimately ended up at the home of john's grandparents bill brown insisted that it took no more than a few minutes to drive from the myers store in grand rapids to john's grandparents home in albion bill brown made this assertion even though the city of grand rapids and the town of albion are located more than 100 miles apart in an attempt to adapt bill brown's testimony to actual locations that would fit his story, Assistant Prosecutor Kelsey tried to coach Bill Brown, into saying the Myers store was located in Jackson, Michigan. Yet, contrary to what the prosecutor told him to say, Bill Brown maintained that the store was located in the city of Grand Rapids. Nevertheless, Bill Brown continued his story by testifying, that he thought they were breaking into a random home when the trio entered the house in Albion. Brown said, He eventually learned, that the home belonged to John's grandparents. The trio found a guest bedroom, where they consumed more cocaine and marijuana. Brown said, that it didn't take long before John and Ms. Larner were having sex. Bill Brown told the jury that John and Ms. Larner liked rough sex, and they were whipping and hitting each other, while he watched. After John and Ms. Larner finished having sex, Brown said, They all went downstairs to play pool in the basement. John grabbed a bottle of brandy from out of the liquor cabinet, and the trio played a game of pool, while they all consumed alcohol, marijuana, and cocaine. Before they finished playing a single game, John and Ms. Larner started having sex again. Bill Brown admitted, that he was masturbating while he watched John and Ms. Larner have sex. According to Brown, Ms. Larner was also willing to have sex with him. But when it came time to perform, Bill Brown claimed that he was unable to maintain an erection. Defense attorney Jerome Sabota asked Bill Brown, why he told the grand jury, that he did in fact have sex with Ms. Larner that night. Bill Brown responded by saying, he must have lied to the grand jury. After claiming he only watched John and Ms. Larner have sex, and insisting that he was unable to maintain an erection, Bill Brown said, the trio wanted to clean up so they took a shower together. That's was when Bill Brown's story took a very dark turn. If I watched Bill Brown on the witness stand, I wondered how many times he and the prosecutor rehearsed his story. And how could the jury believe a word he was saying? He looked like he showed up to court and coked out of his mind. Maybe that's why he couldn't remember everything he was told to say. And that Bill Brown was confused about the facts so early in his story, what was going to happen when the bullshit really got deep? Next time, in episode 5, A Dark Turn. He told John that his plan had too many flaws and he had a safer plan. Bill Brown claimed John burned Ms. Larner's head, hands, and <laughs> in the home's basement fireplace. Stuff was everywhere. They were unable to find any. Brown had no explanation for why a drop of blood was found outside of the buyers did not sell a hatchet matching Bill Brown's description. First time Brown told his story gave a different account of what happened to Ms. Larner. When he made his initial confession, Brown said he never saw John dismember Ms. Larner's Bill body. Bill Brown's testimony was about to become a horrific campfire story. Thank you for listening to Creating a Cannibal, an Productions production. Make sure you follow me on social media and check out my blog for a more in-depth at like how I would praying. Creating a Cannibal is a podcast produced under Emerald Productions. Gerardo G. Gonzalez Jr., Robert D. E. Taft and Lucas Sampson are editorial advisors. Emerald Santos are executive producer and the one who mixed our show. Our theme music are I Can See It, composed by Dark Sun and Dubs Up, composed by Ari De Niro. Our website is creatingacannibal.wordpress.com. Special thanks to Mr. John Ortiz Kehoe for sharing his side of story. Also visit John's blog website where you can see documents from the case, (laughs) johnortiz-kehoe.blogspot.com.